Are you under the Bible? It's actually a profound question. And I want us to think through this. I was once involved in a counseling situation with a couple. They were professing Christians. And during the course of the conversation, knowing that I was to now go to scripture, I first gave an analogy. I held my Bible above my head with my right hand. I lifted it up, put it above my head and said, as a Christian, I'm required, and all of us as Christians are required to be under the Bible. We are not to dictate to God what obedience looks like. He determines what obedience looks like by giving us commands. And we as Christians, if we love him, will keep his commandments. Jesus, in fact, said that. He, he, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so as Christians, we are to be under his word, under the Bible. I was really shocked by the reaction of the gentleman in this uh, conversation because he simply rolled his eyes. And I challenged him and I said, what's your problem with that? And he said, I have no desire for that. Well, we won't go into all that took place in that environment and that conversation, but it left a, a mark on me because I realized there are many Christians who have no desire, well, professing Christians, let's call them that, no desire to come under God's word. And I think it's true to say if we are genuine Christians, God puts a desire in the heart of the truly regenerate, the born-again person, the one who's made alive spiritually. There's something in them that wants to do the will of God as found in the Word of God. Now, there are many applications to what I've just said, one of which is we ought to be under the Bible when it comes to what God has revealed about himself. He has revealed himself in creation. Romans 1 makes that very, very clear. Romans 1.18 and the verses that follow. We know that there's a God through the things that have been made. But there's special revelation. There's natural revelation in creation that tells us a lot about God, but it's not enough to save us. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us we need scripture that is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 3, 15. Verse 16 is very famous. All scripture is breathed out by God, is God breathed. That's verse 16. But verse 15 also tells us, scripture tells us how to be saved. Creation doesn't do that. It tells us there's a God. It makes us responsible to worship him truly to seek to honor him, but to be saved, we need information that is given by God that is disclosed to us in his holy word. And God not only tells us how to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith alone, justification is by faith alone, but the Bible also tells us a lot about who God is. And God has stooped, God has condescended to tell us who he is and what he's doing and what is actually taking place as all of the event, events of time unfold. And there's much we need to say about this. And I want to ask you, are you under the Bible in this? 
don't naturally assume that's the case because we have our philosophies, our ways of thinking, we have our speculations, we have our traditions, and we are emotionally attached to those things so that when God speaks in and through his word, we're not always under it. We're not always saying, well, I'm going to throw off my own thinking. I'm going to absorb what God says and make sure I understand the word of God correctly and then come under it and allow that to be the way I think. Well, doesn't the Bible say that God's thoughts are not our thoughts? Yes, it does. Absolutely. But it is also true to say that God has revealed his thoughts to us in his word and we are to come under that when he has revealed that. Deuteronomy tells us very, very, very clearly the things that God has revealed we're responsible for. It actually says this, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God and the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So God has some secrets, things that he knows only, only he knows those things, and he has no responsibility to reveal his secret things to us. They belong to him. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. And we're responsible for what he's revealed. And we're required to come under it in terms of seeing what he said, hearing what he said, and saying, that's now my position. That's now my understanding. That's now what I believe. We are to worship God truly, and to do so involves engaging with the text of Scripture so that we find out who God is truly and how he wishes to be worshipped. And there is a difference between true and false worship. And there are true and false gods. Well, there's the true God, and there are every other kind of God, with a small g, that don't exist. There is no other God but the true God. And what God puts in the heart of every child of his that is truly his child, those who are truly born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit comes in to the human heart and gives us a desire for the true God and the true gospel. That's what he does. I don't believe anyone who has the Holy Spirit rejects the gospel when they hear it, the true gospel, the biblical gospel, or reject the idea of what God has revealed in his word. And so I think it'd be very profitable for us to seek out the word of God regarding who God says he is and what he is doing in this world. And if and when necessary, adjust our thinking so that we're under it. We're under the word of God. Rather than being ruled by our uh, philosophy, our ways of thinking, maybe it was because we were raised a certain way or else we've come to our own thoughts on some things or who God is. Many people start a sentence like this. To me, God is. Now, unless they are now going to recite things in line with the Bible, they're going to come up with something else we should not start our thinking with, well, I think, 
to me, God is. No, we should start our thinking where God has revealed himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the first verse of God's self-disclosure in the Bible. There is a God, there was a beginning, and he created everything, everything in heaven and on earth. And the rest of scripture is also God's self-revelation. And so, so we should be reading not only the first verse of our Bible, but all the way through to the end of the Bible to learn who God is and what he's doing in this world. We're not the first to do this. Thankfully, there have been uh, teachers and um, people that have been used mightily of God for decades of their life to be doing exactly what I'm suggesting here, going to the scripture to find out what God has revealed about himself and then systematically putting all of those thoughts that he's given us in his word together so that we see the harmony in it all. For instance, as we go to God's word, we find that he is Trinity. There's one God, and this one God is eternally three divine persons. One what? Three whose. It's not a contradiction to say God is one and also three because we're talking about one in essence, there's only one God, and yet three divine persons are each called God in Scripture. Mysterious, for sure. Contradictory, no, not in any way at all. Let me make this statement and see what you think as you hear it. Think about it. God is in control. Now, what Christian would disagree with that statement? Actually, there are some professing Christians who would. They might say, well, he's sovereign, but he's left us in control, and we've got power and authority to uh, do things and make things happen, and without us, God cannot. Well, it's a way of thinking in what is called the Word of Faith movement. I'm so glad to be delivered from that. It's a false view of God. Uh, the idea is, in that realm, God in his sovereignty has left man in control. <laughs> and by the words that he speaks and the seed that he sows, he can have whatever he wishes on earth. And if we don't do that, God's hands are tied because he's left us in charge, even though he's, he's in ultimate control. Do you find that in the Bible? Well, let's go to the Bible. And let's also go to articles of faith from confessions of faith, and let's see if what they reveal and what they say are in line with the Bible. The most important thing is to be under the Bible. And what creeds and confessions through the centuries have done is, I believe, brought us and given to us faithful summaries of what the Bible teaches. These creeds and confessions are not over the Bible, but a reflection of what the Bible itself declares. And so every creed and confession should also be, now hear this, under the Bible. So that what is said in those confessions are in fact what the Bible teaches. Let me start by actually reading a 
confession or part of a confession. It's the Belgic Confession. And this is in modern English, Article 13. I'm just going to read it to you. And what I'm going to suggest is that every statement we read is under the Bible. There are biblical verses we can point to, and we're going to go to some of them, that could highlight and uh, really show forth the fact that what is being said in this confession is biblically based under the Bible. So this is Article 13 of the Belgic Confession, and Article 13 is about the doctrine of God's providence. Hear these words. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will, in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Yet God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with, the sin that occurs. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend, but... In all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples, so as to learn only what he shows us in his word, without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort, since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under His control, so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. For that reason, we reject the damnable error of the Epicureans who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. That's the end of the article, Article 13. Belgic Confession. What do you think about that? Well, what we should do is not react in emotion and say, well, I think. No, we ought to then go to God's Word and say, this, does this statement, does this that we've just heard, arise out of a biblical text or is it a man-made thing? I think we're going to find it's arising out of the biblical text and then we are that being the case, to be under it. And that's what we mean when we adhere to a confession. We're saying we believe this is what God has revealed and a faithful summary of that. 
and therefore we subscribe to it, we're under it. Let me now read in modern English the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, 1. Hear these words. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet, God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin, nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and His power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing His decree. Article 2. God knows everything that could happen under any given conditions. However, His decree of anything is not based on foreseeing it in the future or foreseeing that it would occur under such conditions. Article 3. By God's decree and for the demonstration of His glory, some human beings and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. Others are left to live in their sin, leading to their just condemnation to the praise of His glorious justice. This third chapter has much more to say, but we'll stop there. What do you think about that? Well, you can react, I can react according to my philosophy, my way of thinking, or else say, now, they've said that, it says that, is what has been said scriptural. And only then are we to come under it. So, what do we do with all that? We go to the scripture. If you have a Bible, I invite you to uh, turn fast to some of these uh, passages. Psalm 115 is the first one, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3. There we read these words. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. That's a statement, and if we think something other than the fact that God is sovereign with, uh, in everything that takes place on planet Earth, we might try to wriggle out of uh, the obvious statement by saying, well, our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases in the heavens, but not so much when it comes to events in time on planet Earth. Well, we could say that, but I don't believe that would be a right understanding of what is being revealed there by God. The psalmist, under the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And the reference there is the fact that He's in heaven and He gets His will done. But if we're left in any doubt 
regarding this. Let's go to Psalm 135. Psalm 135, where if there were, was a slight question regarding God's activities on earth and the affairs of men, Psalm 135 really crushed the idea that God is only in the heavens and has sovereignty there, but not on earth. Psalm 135, look at verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. There it is. Not only is it explicit now that God does what he pleases in heaven and on earth, but in the sea and all deeps. It's not like, well, there uh, he, he's sovereign in events that take place on land, but not on the sea. No, not only on the sea, but in the sea and all deeps. As deep as you can go in the sea, God's sovereignty is still expressed there. And all that takes place is because God is doing what he wants to do. Here's a definition of sovereignty. I'm not the first to come up with it. I'm not even sure where I first heard it, but it's this. Sovereignty means God does what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants, when he wants, and there's nothing man can do about it. God does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants, that's what sovereignty is. Where do we get that? Well, one of the verses, Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. He doesn't try to do. He's not hindered by the speculations and the will of man. He does what he wants in heaven and on earth, in the seas, and all deeps. But what if there's some creature in the sea that is defying God and says, no, I'm, I'm going to do my thing. Come back to scripture. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Man has a will. Animals have wills. But God has a will and his will gets done. You'll never find a scripture that says whatever man pleases, he does in heaven or on earth, in the seas and all deeps. No, but we do find whatever the Lord, whatever Yahweh pleases, he does. Whatever he's pleased to do, he does. He gets his will done in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Now notice... The word sovereignty is not in that text, nor the one before it, Psalm 115, verse 3. But sovereignty is all over this text. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, no matter where. Okay, well, isn't there such a thing as luck? You know, there are many people that wish you good luck. Well, it depends what you mean by the word luck. If we understand good things that happen as luck outside of God's decree, we've got a false understanding. How do we know that? Because of what the Bible teaches, what the Bible 
says. What do I mean by that? Well, we think of a soccer game and we think of the ball bouncing uh, in a certain way in, uh, and so that it, uh, the, the, the shot at goal hits the goalkeeper, then hits one of the posts, then hits the goalkeeper and goes in, and we say, wow, what a lucky goal. <laughs> well, I would say, biblically, there isn't a thing called luck. What do I mean by that? Surely you accept that there's luck. N no. Um, if you mean by luck something that happens outside of God's ordination, no, there isn't a thing called luck. For instance, when we talk about chance, it's a related idea to luck. What are the chances, if you've got a coin that has a head side and a tail side, if you're going to flip the coin, what are the chances that it will either come up heads or tails? Well, the answer to that is 100%. <laughs> it will either be heads or tails when you flip the coin, 100%. What are the chances that that coin will be heads? Well, the answer to that is 50%. What are the chances that it will come up on the other side. It won't be heads, it will be tails. The answer again, 50%. But let's ask this question. What power does luck, what power does chance have in making that coin come up heads or tails? When we ask that question, the answer is zero. Why? Because luck is not a thing. Chance is not a thing. It's a word we use that speaks of mathematical probability. And the mathematical probability is that when you flip a coin, it's a 50% chance, or rather 50% probability that it'll come up heads. And a 50% probability it will come up tails. But what power does chance have to make it tails? Nothing. Chance is not a thing. It's no thing. And yet, here's what the Bible says. You ready? Proverbs 16, verse 33. Turn that, please. Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord, from Yahweh. Now, in ancient times, rather than using dice, as we might do in our own day, the rolling of the dice, a lot was used in a similar way. To uh, the ancient world, the lot represents what we would now use as dice. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, notice this, not 30% of the decisions, or on some occasions, God's will takes place. No. Every time, every decision, when the lot is cast into the lap, it's every decision is from the Lord. 
the application to our own times would be you can't visit Las Vegas or as some call it lost wages. <laughs> you can't visit there and go on the slot machines or uh, dabble with some money at uh, a poker table, play cards, but that everything that happens is the Lord's will. Once you understand that, there isn't the concept left intact of luck outside of God's decree. Do you see what we're doing here? We're going to the text of Scripture and aligning our thinking with it. Because you and I might have our own speculations. Well, I believe in luck. Well, I believe in luck. And you might really, really believe in that. But if we're under the Bible, we'll say, you know what, I've got to cast out my way of thinking, or at least uh, renounce it, and say, there isn't a thing called luck. God's will will be done. And there's a theological term for what we're talking about, and it's providence. Providence. The idea is that everything that happens comes under not only the scrutiny of God, but everything that occurs takes place because of the decree of God. so that Proverbs 16.33 can remain true. The lot's cast into the lap, but it's every decision. 100% of the decisions of the lot, saying yes, no, whatever it might be, every decision, every decision, every decision is from the Lord. I don't ask you, do you believe that? If you're under the Bible, you do. How about this one? Proverbs 19, on three chapters to the right. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Here we read, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. Man has his plans. He has many of them. But it's God's purpose. It's the purpose of Yahweh that will stand. Hmm. We see this not only in the Old Testament, we see it in the New. The uh, book of James is very clear. We're not to say, we're going to do this tomorrow. We're going to do that tomorrow. We're going to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or do that. Why? Because it's the purpose of Yahweh that will stand. It's God's purpose that will be seen rather than our purpose. We might have a plan. We might think, I'm going to do this tomorrow. Have you ever had that? I'm sure you have. There's not many days without this. I'm going to do this today and then something happens so that you don't get to the this. Something happens. You get a phone call. Oh, I've now got to do this rather than that this. The thing I thought I'd be doing all day. Now things have changed and you didn't get to your this, your purpose, your plan because the purpose of the Lord took place. And though we may not now embrace the concept of luck, we can embrace the concept of smiling providence. <laughs> Yeah, God in his grace and in his kindness 
cause something to take place. The lot's cast into the lap. Every decision that it makes is from the Lord. And many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Let me ask you again, are you under this? Next chapter, Proverbs 20, verse 24. A similar statement is made. A man's steps are from the Lord, from Yahweh. How then can man understand his way? Here we're seeing that God, the Lord, ordains the steps of man. He gets his will done in heaven and on earth all the time. And therefore, we don't understand our steps the way God does because we oftentimes do things, we take steps that ordinarily we may not have done. We may not have said, I'm going to give my Tuesday over to being an hour, on the uh, an hour and a half on the phone trying to get through to customer service. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have planned my day that way. But that's what happened and that's what God ordained. I hope you're thinking through the ramifications of the scriptures here because those ramifications are profound. I use an illustration of a rock being thrown into our theological pond and the waves that emerge because the rock's been thrown in can go on for minutes and hours and days and even decades as we see the ramifications of what God has said and we realize, oh wow, I've got to change my thinking because God has revealed himself. That rock is the revelation of his word. When it comes to us, there, uh, that, that rock in the water makes waves, let me tell you. Next chapter, Proverbs 21, verse 1. This is big. You ready? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he wills. Did you read that? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, when we talk about the heart of man, we're talking about that which is deepest in a man, his desires, his will, what he wishes to do. And when we see the revelation of Scripture here that he, that's God, turns it wherever he wills, it means that God has the ability to turn the will of man wherever he wishes. Concepts of so-called free will that doesn't take into account Proverbs 21 verse 1 is, uh, those concepts are unbiblical. Because God says, the heart of the king is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Wherever he will. God puts it into the heart of kings to do things and not do things. You read your Bible, you'll see this happens over and over and over again. 
God puts it into the heart of a king to do this. God gets his will done. Now, the illustration used here of the king is very helpful to us because the king has a will, the king has a heart, the king has desires, and when we understand that God turns that will and heart the way he wishes, we're given revelation here in the scripture that informs us about every person. What do I mean by that? It's the argument of the greater to the lesser. The greatest will in a nation is the king's will. It used to be that way anyway. Book of Ecclesiastes says, where the word of a king is, there is power. Oh yeah, that's right. If the king said, off with their heads, their heads came off. The will of the king is the will with the greatest authority and power in the land. And so, if it's the case, or let me start that sentence differently, since it is the case that the king has a heart and yet God turns that heart wherever he wills, that's true of everyone else in the nation. If God can, or since God can, and he does, turn the will of the king wherever he, God, wishes, that's true of everyone else because no one in the nation has the authority of the king. And yet, God turns the heart of the king wherever he wills. So what is true of the king, with his ultimate authority, humanly speaking, is also true of everyone else in the nation. And by extension, everyone else on planet Earth. Proverbs 21.1 is loaded. The heart of the king, not just the heart of some prince or just the heart of the lowly person in society. No, the, the highest one. The one with the, with the most authority in the nation. God turns his heart wherever he will. Therefore, from the argument from the greater to the lesser, that's what you see here. It must be the case that God turns every heart wherever he will. That's the God of the Bible. Let's go from Proverbs back to Job. Job 14. Look at verse 5. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. All right, it's a statement in a paragraph. And what's being communicated here is that man's days are determined, the number of his months, by God. There's a similar passage in the book of Psalms, isn't there? That all our days, all my days were written in your book before there was one of them. Do you remember that? Psalm 139. Here again, the days and the number of man's months is determined by God. And God has appointed his limits that he, man, cannot pass. That again is providence. That again is sovereignty. Let's go to Isaiah and we'll see a number of uh, scripture verses here. 
Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, Yahweh. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, he being God. Here's his declaration. Before me, no God was formed. Right there is the demolishment of Mormonism, the Latter-day Saint movement. They have the belief that God was once a man who himself had a God. The God of this planet had a God who had a father and a mother. But this is the declaration of God. Before me, no God was formed. But he goes on, nor shall there be any after me. There's only one God. There wasn't any before me formed, nor shall there be any after me. Verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Verse 12, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God, and henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? There's a question there, and it's a rhetorical question. When God says, I work, and who can turn it back? The answer isn't given because the answer is obvious. No one. In fact, that's a statement that's made before the question. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? That's the God of the Bible. And let me ask you again, are you under this? Are you under the Bible? On to the right again, Isaiah 45, verse 7. God himself speaking. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. There are some that will not accept this. But they do so at their peril because they are now not under the Bible. Many believe in a God who blesses, but not in a God who curses. After 9-11, in stores and on the back of cars and almost everywhere you looked for at least a couple of months, we saw this phrase, God bless America. But when someone got on radio or television as a biblical proclaimer, preacher, and said, whatever took place on 9-11 was under the hand of God and was a restraint of blessing, they, they were ridiculed to the hilt. They, some of them even apologized and said, well, I'll take that back. Well, they shouldn't do that because they were proclaiming truth. You see, America at that moment believed in a God who could bless America, but not in a God who could restrain his hand of blessing and actually bring a curse. But you don't have to read far in your Bible 
to realize God can bless and curse. God can make well-being and create calamity. One of the things we did at uh, the church I was pastoring, because everyone else was proclaiming God bless America, we put up a sign, America bless God. <laughs> yeah, we need to bless God. We need to come under him. We are one nation under God. And to have his blessing, we must be under him and acknowledge him and glorify him. America bless God. But here's what I want us to see. Look at the text, Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I, might, I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh who does all these things. It's not like God apologizes for this and said, well, technically, I guess I was involved in some way. No, he acknowledges. I make well-being. That's what we would call a smiling providence. And I create calamity. That's a frowning providence. And God says, I'll take it on the chin. Yep, I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. I do all these things. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the sovereignty of God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is providence. That is, as we've already seen from the confession, something that affirms the confession. God is sovereign. Isaiah 46, next chapter, look at verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. Again, Mormonism collapses with just a reading of the text of the Bible. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Notice this next phrase, Isaiah 46.10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God not only, not only knows the end from the beginning. All right, we're at the beginning point. God is about to say, let there be light and create the universe, if we could go back in time, in fact, it's impossible to speak in right categories here because before there was time, because God was about to create it, before that there was no time. It was all eternal. But we are finite beings and we can only speak in time dimension because of our finiteness. And if we were to interview God before he was about to say, let there be light, and we could interview him, a right view of God would say that God knows 
everything, right? God knows infallibly with exhaustive knowledge everything. He's all wise. The technical phrase is omniscient. Science is knowledge. Omni means all. All science, all knowledge. God is all-knowing. God knows the end from the beginning. That's just an orthodox view of God. So before he said, let there be light, if we could interview God and ask, what do you know about the future? We know the answer, right? God would say everything. Do you know that as you create and as you then create man in your image, you realize there's going to be a fall, right? Adam's going to sin. Well, yes, God knows that, of course. And you're still going to go ahead and create? Yes. <clears throat> so much does God know that before there is a world, he's ordained that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, would become a man, be born of a virgin, live a sinless life, die an atoning death on the cross, be raised from the dead, and then ascend to the Father's throne. To be given all authority in heaven and earth so that anyone who repents and believes the good news about what Jesus has done for sinners in his death on the cross for us will be saved forever. And guess what? <clears throat> this act of the cross was ordained not five months before the cross because God saw that things weren't going to go too well for his son. No, before the foundation of the world. Jesus is called the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. That's what scripture says. Did God know there'd be a heaven? Yes. Did God know there'd be a hell? Yes. Did he know exhaustively, infallibly, who would be the occupants of both places? You know the answer. An orthodox view of God would say, yes, he knows everything. And God created the world knowing that a certain person and persons would be in heaven and a certain persons and people would be in hell. He knew their names. So just as the elect have their names written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, so it is with the occupants of hell. That is, ladies and gentlemen, even if you might have an emotional reaction to that, just an orthodox view of God. Or else you've got to deny that God knew everything. The Bible tells us not only did he know everything, he declared everything. That, ladies and gentlemen, is God's decree. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish not 48%, of my purposes, 78%, and a real good week, 92%, no, 100%. I will accomplish all my purpose. You see what we're saying? The statements of our confession regarding God's decree arises from the text of the Bible. God says, this is who I am. 
I am God, there is none like me. I am God, there's no other. And this is who I am as God. I am the one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. I have spoken, I'll bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. We are working out in time what God has decreed in eternity. Two further scriptures and we'll close for now. Lamentations 3.37. A question is asked. In fact, in verse 37 and 38, two questions are asked. I want you to think about the answers to these questions because they're rhetorical questions. Again, the answers are not given, but that's because the answer to both questions are obvious. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? So someone says something and what they says comes to pass. How did that happen unless God has commanded it? The answer is it didn't. Verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Answer that question. And once you answer it rightly, you'll have a right view of God's providence. Amos chapter 3. I want to give you time to see it. Turn in your Bibles. Amos chapter 3. If you need to pause this recording and find it, I'd like you to see this. Just look at the text. Amos 3 and verse 6. And again, two questions are asked. They're not answered because they're rhetorical questions. And that's because the answer to both questions is obvious. Amos chapter 3 verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Here the, the trumpet being blown is a com communication method whereby the city is alerted as to war. And when that declaration is heralded by the trumpet, isn't there not a measure of fear? The answer is yes. You're not having the same thoughts of peace that you had before the trumpet blast was blown because you know war is a brutal thing, a calamitous thing that can affect either you personally or people you know personally. Nothing nice about it. And so is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? The answer is, yeah, the people become afraid when they realize there's a declaration of war. Next question. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Do we believe in a God who blesses, but not a God who can curse? Scripture makes it clear. There's no disaster that comes to a city unless the Lord, Yahweh, has done it. It's by his decree. Now, as we read in the Confessions, uh, the Belgic Confession and the London Baptist Confession of Faith, God is not the author of sin, and that's mysterious. But what is not mysterious is the fact that God rules 
and reigns for his glory. And in the New Testament we read Ephesians chapter 1. Are you ready for this one? Ephesians chapter 1. In him, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I'm under the Bible. I believe this. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. I trust you are under the Bible too. For this is the only God who is, the God who rules and reigns. And may we, like the saints in glory, cry out hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. May we come under your word and by that come under the truth of God as he's revealed himself. And may you bless your people. I pray for all those under the sound of my voice even now that they know the blessing of God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord graciously, graciously bless your life this day and always. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.